welcome to Conscious Pathways, the podcast where we explore the intersection of education and social justice through transformative conversations. I'm your host, Brittany, and today I am joined by Martha Castillo. Martha is an education disruptor and advocate for first-generation BIPOC students. Martha has over a decade of experience which spans roles as a public school educator, nonprofit board director, college instructor, and program manager. Despite overcoming a learning disability, she has earned three degrees and is a doctoral candidate at the University of Arizona. Martha has continued to champion solutions for underserved students as an equity-minded education leader. She collaborates to bridge the gaps in K-12 education, as well as higher education, emphasizing partnerships and community engagement. Martha is the founder of Seeds of Grit Educational Services, where she provides workshops on equitable education practices. She's committed to closing opportunity gaps and also volunteers with the Scholar Match as a virtual college coach. I am so excited to share this interview with you. We talked a lot about parent engagement and students with special needs. We talked about the very specific needs of underserved communities and students of color as they are navigating their first generation experience going to college. It's definitely a little bit of a different topic that we handle, um, usually it's early education, but I think this is also a really great topic and I'm really excited to share this other perspective. So let's jump into that interview. Welcome to Conscious Pathways. Much, Brittany, for this invite. <laughs> Thank I'm so you. excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here. I was reading through your bio. Um, I usually will find my guests like on LinkedIn. So either like I'll look for people or I'll see a post by someone. I'm like, ooh, you seem interesting. Let's connect. Um, and so I saw I saw something that you would post, and I was like, this is the person I would like to talk to. <laughs> Aw, thank you. Yeah, I saw your podcast too. I had, which is, like I mentioned, I love podcasts. So I'm mm-hmm. like, how have I not heard of this podcast before? <laughs> I need to add it to my list for my yes. walk. So, so excited to be here. Yes. And I am a, a LinkedIn fanatic. So mm. super, super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I'm so excited. Uh, one question I always ask my guests is, well, how did you get your start in education or who or what inspired you to be an advocate for education? Oh, that's a great question. So I was, um, it, 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 it didn't come naturally, let's just say that way. I initially started in corporate America. I worked for a uh, private utility company in Southern California for six years. Um, great job, paid well. Um, I actually started working on my undergrad at the University of Laverne in public administration because I initially thought, oh, I'm going to work for a city or, you know, public, public environment, you know, helping the public. Um, during that time, I was volunteering uh, with helping youth in the criminal justice system when mm-hmm. they came out. Then I became a CASA advocate. If you're not familiar, court-appointed special advocate working with foster youth, loved working with kids, mm-hmm. um, underserved students. And I realized very quickly after six years in corporate America that it was not my vibe. Mm-hmm. And I did not want to be there. It was great pay, but it was just not about the cubicle life. And mm-hmm. I knew there was more for me. Um, I struggled on my own with a, a undiagnosed learning disability. Mm-hmm. I learned about it when I was in community college. So mm-hmm. everything kind of just started lining up in terms of like, why am I not in education? I love working with youth. Why didn't I ever think of <laughs> education? Um, one day I just started looking on idealist.com and I came up with this opportunity to be a New York City teaching fellow. I love New York. I've been to New York several times. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? This sounds great. Teaching in the Bronx. and 
being a special education teacher while I get my master's yes. kept me in. So I applied, I got it. And it was uh, it was a big move. I moved from Southern California to New York. Um, Weather busted out my 401k. Uh, mm -hmm. Took a huge pay cut. <laughs> so lots of sacrifices, but um, I have to say it's probably the most rewarding but most difficult job that I've ever done in my whole entire life is teaching. Yes. So hats off to all the teachers out there because. Yes. It is not easy. It is not That's easy. So it so is many. not easy, but I agree. So rewarding. And I've also lived that corporate life and been been in the cubicles and the fluorescent lighting and the lack of windows. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's totally the thing that sticks out, right? The fluorescent lights. The fluorescent oh lights That's... and the lack of windows. It's like, oh, why am I sad all the time? <laughs> exactly. You wonder why. You wonder why. <laughs> But yeah, um, for sure. Yes, I love I love that our backgrounds kind of always take us in all these different directions. But for those of us who are in our heart and souls, like just know that education is where we want to be. It we, it always finds a way. Yeah. We always find our way exactly. into education somehow. <laughs> somehow, wiggles its way in. Exactly, exactly. Totally. And it's I agree. It's it's so difficult, but it's also so incredibly rewarding and so incredibly necessary. Um, and I know you said you had a background working with foster youth and working uh, as a CASA, which is also a really important aspect, too, because there's so many students out there that need positive, you know, adult yeah. interactions and positive, you know, adult mentorship. And that's a really beautiful way to provide that to a you know, child who really could use that connection. Absolutely. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. It opened my eyes to so many things, you know, in terms of just like education and lack of resources and support for that that specific population of students mm -hmm. you know there's so many um but I feel like during that time I it started to get even closer to this idea of like well what about their education and yes. what does that look like you know on top of everything else going on in their life so very very uh pivotal moment mm -hmm. in my life for sure when I when I was a CASA yes yes and was there anything specific that inspired you to want to do CASA so during that time, I was working on my undergrad, mm -hmm. and I had to work on a final paper or thesis, mm -hmm. and I did it on uh, working with foster youth and what mm -hmm. are what are the benefits of you know providing them with a mentor mm -hmm. specifically at a really young age. Um, I really touched a lot on the education side of things, um, as you know, a cost oftentimes is the representative for the, mm -hmm. you know for the child when you go to court. Like if you see that needs are not being met. In their foster home, you speak up as a CASA and you say, mm -hmm. this is what they need and they are not getting it. Um, so I think during that time, it was twofold. I, I had a passion for working for youth and I thought, you know what, we need to bring more attention to this. So why not make it the topic of my of my paper, my final paper for, sorry, not my master's, my undergrad, it's my bachelor's degree. Yes. Yes, that is such an, a, an important topic, especially with, you know, foster youth. And we've seen, I've, I've worked for organizations in the past that worked with uh, former foster youth and worked in advocacy and child welfare. And, you know, it's one of those things that once you kind of start, you know, opening the iceberg of it, you start seeing how deep this goes and how, how historical oh, yeah. it is. And just, there's so much that goes to it than like what meets the eye. And so having, exactly. you know, people who are advocating and having people who are researching it and actually engaging with that and also meaningfully engaging people with lived experience is so 
important so we can have the change that we really need to see and that you know these these young people you know they deserve to see that change right they've been through enough already <laughs> yes yes they yes. really have so you've described yourself as like a first generation um I believe college student you know how has that shaped your general perspective within education oh in so many ways so you know back when i was doing my undergrad first gen wasn't really a thing i would say mm-hmm. um you had kind of heard of it but not really understood what that meant and little by little i started identifying as just that like wow, I really have had to figure stuff out on my own because yeah. my parents didn't go to college. My parents are immigrants. They immigrated here from Mexico. So mm-hmm. con- the concept of a degree, you know, they they gave me an option essentially when I graduated from high school. Either you work or you go to school and either one was fine with them. There wasn't this huge push. But I always knew I want to go to college. I want to get a degree mm-hmm. and I want to be educated. I loved education. Um, but slowly but surely, through my own experiences, you know, struggling with the learning disability that I did not know until I was in community college, um, struggling with it and realizing, wow, if I'm going through this and I didn't know that I had a learning disability, how many other kids don't know this because they don't have the resources or the support or the parents to know what that might look like. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was that. And then on top of that, you know, when I went into teaching and I started to see the communities that I was serving students in, in the Bronx, mm-hmm. they're underserved. A lot of their parents work multiple job, jobs. They don't have the time to provide them with the support oftentimes to guide them in those areas. You know, they're just trying to put food on the table most mm-hmm. of the time. So I started to realize that there was a lack, a lack of understanding, a lack of support in our education systems and how truly disadvantaged oftentimes we feel as first-gen students not having the same support that perhaps other students that we go to college have. And you start to realize it when it's like, wait a minute, this person is more knowledgeable than I am. Like, what am I missing here? And it's like, ah, (laughs) they had somebody that already, you know, been there, done that, Mm -hmm. kind of help walk them through that process. So it spurred this like passion for like, I want to be that person. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to be the person to, give them the resources and the guidance and say, hey, this is what you have to do and make sure you do X, Y, and Z and, you know, always ask for help. And I found myself going into that mode when Mm -hmm. I was teaching. So then I'm like, maybe I need to get into like college access (laughs) because this is starting to be more of a a passion in me. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated, that's when I realized, you know, what's next. And I actually accepted a job back in Southern California with a nonprofit as a college readiness counselor for foster youth, oh, um, wow. interestingly enough, since I had a foster youth and literally, um, so it's great. So mm-hmm. It's a great learning opportunity. And it really, again, helped me continue to see the need mm-hmm. within that population of students um, to, to really support them and help them yes. along the way. Yes. And that's incredibly important. I, my parents also didn't go to college and I had a grandma that had went to college. So I never really considered myself, you know, first gen in any way. Cause I was like, Oh, I saw my grandma go. So like, you know, it's fine, but it's so true. Like to have someone who has been there and can actually walk you through the process. There are so many additional opportunities and services that I just didn't even know that I had available to me. Cause all I had seen was, you know, work, 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 work. You just, you put in the hard work and then you make it work, you know? So I was over here going to school full time and working full time and doing all the, doing the absolute most 
when there were scholarships I could have been applying to, there were other opportunities that I could have been applying to. And so there's just things that I know now after finishing college. Um, (laughs) After the fact. (laughs) After the fact. I'm like, I could have saved so much money. (laughs) Yes, that's the worst part, right? (laughs) When you're like, all these scholarships were available and I had no idea. Exactly. Like, wait a minute. (laughs) And so, you know, having someone who does know that, who actually does walk you through those. And also, I think part of, you know, us being part of like marginalized communities is that asking for help sometimes is really extra difficult. And it's, it really it's, we feel like it's a sign of weakness. So I could have gone mm-hmm. into the consular's office and said, hey, I'm really struggling with this workload. I'm really struggling trying to get stuff done. Like I'm staying up until, like I'm pulling all nighters to finish all my work because I have to go to work in the morning. And just, I could have gone to my counselor and just said that, but no, I was like, I'm, I'm strong. I can do this. Like, I don't need help. Right. But looking back, I'm like, girl, if you don't go ask for help. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yes, that's see, that's the thing you start looking into like mental health, right? Because yes. you're stressing out. You're like, I don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. Who am I going to ask? And you know, culturally speaking, you're right. In the Latino community, it's the same too. Where it's like, well, you you'll figure it out, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like, no, there's people there to help me. Yes. <laughs> Why am I not asking them for help? That's what they're there for. Yes. Um, yes. So yeah, there's so many things that you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. Right? You don't really know what you don't know. And I know there are a lot more colleges that are, you know, looking at more accessible options to kind of understanding culturally, right, that there might be people out there that need help, but culturally, that's just not something that is a part of their practice right now. Mm -hmm. And so I know there are programs out there that are trying to make it more accessible, trying to encourage students to use these services and doing it in more culturally kind of relevant ways to which we will want Mm -hmm. to engage in that, right? So just telling someone to go ask for help when that's not something that they are culturally used to doing, they're just not going to utilize those services. And then, you know, organizations are going to be saying, well, they must not need it because they're not using it. And it's like, well, we need to think outside the box a little bit. We need to look at the culture that we're trying to appeal to here. (laughs) Yes. So many things go into that, right? It's Mm -hmm. not just about building it and, oh, they're going to come. It's like, how can we make it something that they can actually use and want to Mm -hmm. use? and access openly and what are we doing as an organization Mm -hmm. to be more welcoming or what are we not doing right that is perhaps keeping us from being welcoming um you know with that being said like I'm working on my dissertation right now Mm -hmm. and one of the big topics is the the impact of um family engagement on the persistence Mm -hmm. for first generation students and that's one aspect that I think in the time that I've been in education I've seen that there's so much work to be done there, yes. especially with, you know, our parents of color, you know, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you, you know, make your school more welcoming to them? How do you make them mm-hmm. want to engage more with teachers, with their admin? It's such an important part of, you know, engaging your child's education, but if mm-hmm. the school is not doing that, or even higher ed institutions, you know, their first year is very important for them to know what it's about. So mm-hmm. that's one thing that I feel is so important yes to help that population out yes yes that family engagement and I always say like when you're working in a classroom you're you're building a community so the students inside of your classroom are part of that community but also the wider school is a part of that community other teachers the admin the principal right Mm. and then of course the families are a part of that community and the community outside the actual school building are a part of that all of these things are working together in tandem to 
create this yeah. community and we do a disservice to you know the students and the wider community when we aren't meaningfully and authentically engaging the people who are right there with us right um absolutely and so what kind of challenges have you seen with regards to involving like just parent engagement really getting them to meaningfully engage you know what kind of challenges have you seen in terms of just education or in terms of just parents wanting to be engaged or parents wanting to be involved mm -hmm. what kind of challenges are out there Oh, that's a great question. Again, I'm in the midst of that research, yeah. and I one thing that honestly has come up so much in in the research that I've doing I've been doing is it kind of goes hand in hand this idea of family and community mm. for first gen population. But one thing that has come up consistently is it's not that the parents don't want to engage; mm. it's how is the school engaging them, right? Um, yes you have a workshop, but if you have it in the middle of the day, you're not going to have a lot of parents. So what are we doing to access that population? Are we providing free childcare? Are we providing free snacks? Mm -hmm. um, these are things that we don't really think about, right? Mm -hmm. But if a parent is working and say it's a single family home, or even if, you know, mom's available, but dad's work, like who's going to take care of the kids? Mm -hmm. Little things that you would think are common sense are not necessarily thought of, yes. you know, at the moment when you, you know, build these workshops. Another thing that I think has come up um, a lot is, and still believe it or not, it's that language barrier um, for our Latino community specifically, mm -hmm. or even just any other community that does not speak English and does not have English as, a, as their first language. Like, mm -hmm. are you using other methods, whether it's translator, um, you know, some things to make it more accessible to different types of community mm -hmm. um, is so, so important. And on top of that, if you're looking, if you're working with students that are first gen or will be first gen, do they know the value of education? Mm -hmm. um, speaking for myself, my parents knew that college was a good thing, but they didn't know why. <laughs> they didn't know the difference mm -hmm. between, oh, what's a bachelor's and what's a master's and what's a doctorate and what is this degree going to get you, mm -hmm. right? Um, so a simple lesson or even, you know, parent-teacher conference, hey, let's talk a little bit about the importance of college. Why is it important, mm -hmm. right? Things that, again, you don't think about at the moment because you think, oh, well, they know education is important. Do they? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's kind of common sense to one. But when you start to think, like you said, out of, outside of the box, mm -hmm. you start to realize, oh, wow, we really haven't thought about this specific community of parents. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's one thing that I making it accessible and, and yes. thinking about our different types of parents and communities that we serve. Yes. And I love so much about that because it's the making it accessible. It's so, it's so important, right? So sometimes we yes. think when parents aren't engaging in the classroom, coming from that classroom experience, sometimes when we offer like, Oh, you can come into the classroom and read a book, or you can come into the classroom and, and do this, or, you know, we make it very narrow in the ways that parents can, engage within the classroom with their student. Mm -hmm. And then when parents aren't jumping to do that, you know, sometimes as educators, we think, oh, well, they must not care or they must, they don't want right. to, or, you know, like it's, it's not important to them. Right. Or we'll have mm -hmm. parents missing parent teacher conferences. And it's like, oh, well, they don't care about their child. And like mm -hmm. on, you know, being in the teacher's position, right. It's, you put a lot of work into that and you're, you're looking at all these different things. You get all these students that you got to like do assessments for. And there's just a lot, you know, going on so much, so much, but sometimes we do need to take that step and that pause and ask some different questions, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is really important, exactly. right. Is 
okay, so I have a parent who's not really showing up for parent-teacher conferences. I have a parent who's not signing up for the potlucks that's not coming in, you know, that could lead me to make some assumptions, but maybe that Mm -hmm. could lead me to ask some different questions about why, right? Because if if the only way that they can engage is during the day, well, they've probably got to go to work. If they have even younger Mm -hmm. children, someone's got to watch that kid and, you know, you haven't really made it accessible, even though we might in the moment think that we have, but right. that's when we've got to start asking a little bit deeper questions and really trying to understand, you know, the minds of, of parents, especially when you, know, you might have first-gen parents who, like you said, might not, you know, fully comprehend like the importance of higher education, or it's just not something that they have experience with or not something that they value. Or another thing is that parents could have just had a really negative experience with school themselves. And so that means that their view of school is like, well, if that happened to me, that's going to happen to them. That's the way that all schools Mm -hmm. are. That's the way all teachers are. And so if they're coming in with their own kind of negative views of school, then that's just something that it's good for us to know, you know, and it's good for us to engage with them in, in kind of different ways to help challenge that narrative. Absolutely. Yeah, I think another factor that, I, again, I at the moment when, you know, I was teaching, I really thought about it's like, you know, do we have a diverse GTA mm. or diverse group of parents that are meeting on, a, you know, if we have parents, you know, a group of parents, you know, what is what does that group of parents look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another aspect that we really, I think, need to pay attention to again they may not have time to maybe meet at a specific time but we need to make sure that our ptas look like our students right? yes because that makes a big difference in terms of decisions that are being made for our students mm-hmm. um it's huge 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 yes so yes that's definitely another important factor our ptas our school boards it's important to like yeah. make sure that even like our teachers in the community look like the community (laughs) that's important too is just being intentional about when we're crafting our teaching teams to make sure that we're also being intentional about who we're inviting into that space as well like we want to make sure that the students can see themselves represented in their you know school teachers and administrators and like you said the pta it's you know decisions are being made and we want to make sure that our community has a seat at that table and not only has a seat at that table but their voice is heard and their voice is valued because yes. um, oftentimes we get to the table and that's about it. <laughs> that's it. That's as far as it goes. As far as it goes. You raise your hand and I say, we'll take that into consideration yes. and then nothing happens. Mm-hmm. It's like, wait a minute, what am I here for? Exactly. Exactly. So we got to go a little step yeah. further, like get at the table, but also. <laughs> yes. yes. Make sure it's a two-step process for sure. Yes. Yes. So in regards of that parent and, you know, school community engagement, um, you know, what, how do you think that parents and teachers can work together to support, you know, a student's, you know, long-term goals, whether that is higher education, whether that's trade school, you know, whether that's no school at all, like how can they work together to support that student? I love that. Um, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I've seen in just working with different, you know, like as a teacher, as a counselor, as an educator, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I've had is making sure, you know, to your point, asking the right questions as a teacher and on the flip side as a parent, not being afraid mm-hmm. to either ask questions or push back. Yes. Um, oftentimes I've, you know, as a teacher, there were times where 
things were being told to the parents of my students where I'm like, whoa, whoa, you, let's ask some questions here. Yes. Especially when you're a special education teacher and you're mm -hmm. working with IEP, that's a huge, yes. you know, red flag when yes. say the school's saying, hey, this is what we're thinking, you know, and then the parent comes and say, hey, this is what they're thinking of doing. Let's ask some questions, yes. right? Let's, let's ask some questions. Let's take some, really, let's take a step back. You don't mm -hmm. have to say yes to everything. Do not feel like you have to say yes to everything. Um, yes. And it's tough, right, as a teacher, because obviously you work for the school, but you know that as a parent, if I was the parent of that child, I would have a lot of questions. Um, yes. So not being afraid to partner with your teacher as a parent to say, hey, what do you know about this? Um, do you have any, oftentimes I found myself giving parents resources. So mm -hmm. as a teacher, being well-informed about resources in the community, connecting them with organizations that perhaps work on topics of like specifically with IEPs, I would literally try to connect them with organizations that would advocate for students oftentimes mm -hmm. if they were running into a lot of issues. Um, because the truth is, as a teacher, you're not supposed to know everything, yeah. right? And oftentimes I didn't, and I had to be honest, like, you know what, I don't know the answer to this question, but I have a great resource. Yes. And here's the information. And let me connect you with so-and-so because I've already talked to them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it goes both ways, working together in partnership and, and not being afraid. You know, I think oftentimes, again, speaking from the Latino community, there's this fear that I would see in parents where it's like they were afraid to ask me a question. I'm like, I'm just, I'm a teacher. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm just a person. You can ask me a question. Like, mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing wrong with asking a question. Um, there won't be repercussions, right? Mm -hmm. You can just have an honest conversation. Um, so I think it goes both ways. I think that's how you build trust, yes. right? Being transparent about, hey, this is what I could tell you. This is what I can. Mm -hmm. But wherever I can't, let me give you a resource that's going to help you out, right? Because mm -hmm. I don't want to leave them hanging. That was my big thing. Like, if I can't help them, I want somebody else to help them because yes. I know that there's people that are already doing the work. So, you know, as parents, they're so busy. Like, mm -hmm. they don't have time to look for, yeah, hey, go to this website. No, no, no. Here's the number. Mm -hmm. Here's the contact. Call them. Or, hey, let me email them for you and connect them to you so you can set up a meeting find the ways to, to help make it easier for them because they have so much on their plate, especially mm -hmm. depending on how many kids are in the household. Like, yes. I can't even imagine yes. having to facilitate that. So, you know, being a partner, thinking of it as a more of a partnership, you know, supporting this one student that you want to, you know, do big things in life. So that's the way I like to look at it. You just dropped so many valuable gems right there. <laughs> <laughs> Because it, it is a partnership and it is you're building that relationship. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't have children of my own, but I've worked with children with, you know, special needs. And I can see how hard that is, that is on, on parents, right? Parents don't generally yeah. go into parenting with the, expect, with the expectation that their student is going to have exceptional needs or have, you know, additional and special needs. Right. You know, these things, these things happen. And it doesn't mean that the child is bad or wrong or anything is, you know, wrong with the child. It just means that they have, you know, additional needs that we need to be aware of. And Absolutely. it can be so tricky to find care and it can be so tricky to navigate the space because there's all this like insurance that you have to go through. And then, you know, I worked, wow. I worked in early childhood. So we kind of are in the beginning parts of that. So it's like, I'm seeing some things and I'm like, you know what, this is kind of outside of the realm of what I would expect from a child of this age. So maybe we could start talking about right. screenings and, you know, it gets, it gets difficult because there's usually sometimes some resistance there. Sometimes parents can see it and they're like, yeah, I've been wondering about that. But 
sometimes, you know, they, they might not see it. And, you know, it's hard to come to terms with that. But it's important to be really engaged in that process with that student because we know that early intervention is so important and sets that child up for success throughout their educational journey and throughout their life, right? And can really be helpful to students. And, you know, parents should be, you know, have the the skills to advocate for their for their child and be able to ask, like you said, ask a lot of those questions and build partnerships Mm -hmm. with your your child's teacher because you know, you both are going to see two sides of the same child, right? So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, that's so, so true. And that's the thing is that oftentimes, you know, as a teacher, you you oftentimes see their children more than they do. Mm-hmm. So helping them see that, hey, this is what I noticed in the classroom. Mm-hmm. How is he or she at home, you know? And yeah. then having conversations around that. And that's, again, it doesn't have to be a meeting. It could just be a quick email or, mm-hmm. hey, text. This is what I saw. Is, is everything okay? What are you seeing at home? Yes you know, just a quick communication. Um, yeah. I think it's so, so important. Yes, yes. And as you said, it's about building that partnership too. So when you engage meaningfully and authentically with parents, right, they're going to want to be more open with you, right? So you go in yeah. with that, you know, vulnerability and we're both in this for the best interest of your child, right? Because there can be a lot of resistance, like you said, sometimes the school is saying we're going to do this and there's all these meetings and there's all these big words and all these big terms and you have to go to insurance and doctor's appointments. So sometimes there's just so much going around that to know that as a parent that they have a partner in this that is like, no, we're both here for the child. We both want what's best for Mm -hmm. them and we're going to advocate together. (laughs) Just knowing that you have a team can be so pivotal to making sure that that student has, you know, what they need to be successful. You know, I find it, it's so disheartening. I have so many friends who have, you know, just recently discovered that they had ADHD their entire life, right? And were never diagnosed. Yeah. Right. And it's like, man, you could have had so many resources. You could have had so, like, this could have been so much easier for you in school if we had known. (laughs) Exactly. I will say this on the flip side, because for me, I had dyscalculia and I didn't know, which is like dyslexia, but in math is the way I like to describe it literally about to drop out of college Brittany and (laughs) I went to this diet like I literally was on probation Mm -hmm. and when I tell you when they gave me that and said this is what you have and this is why you're not passing your math classes Mm -hmm. it was like like my mind just opened I felt like okay great I knew something was wrong (laughs) that sense of relief like I don't know how to describe it other than it was a sense of I knew it like I knew it I'm I'm not broken you know exactly we can work with this Exactly. Like sometimes I think that, you know, parents or caregivers might think that they're protecting the child by not, you know, exposing them to being stigmatized, which is very valid. It happens, right? Right. There's a lot of stigmas for, you know, mental and emotional and all these different disabilities are stigmatized there. But also the fact of one just knowing that, okay, it's not that I am broken or I'm somehow wrong. It is just, okay, my brain just needs some help in this area. (laughs) Yeah, it works in a different way. It just we works. all have different brains. Yeah, we all have different brains. <laughs> brains just working in the way that it wants to work, and so we can we can make right. life easier. <laughs> exactly. We just find the tools and we make it work somehow, and we just get the support. But yeah, yes. you know, it, it was one of those things. I think I nothing happens by coincidence. I mm-hmm. 
I fell into special education for a reason. Like I had been through it yes. myself and it's like, if anybody knows how this is, kid, <laughs> let me tell you, let, let me help you. Let me see what I can do to help you because yes. it's, it's not a cool feeling, you know, yes. you going through that on your own. It isn't, for sure. it isn't. And we definitely need more advocates out there who, you know, understand and are there for the, the students and the children. Cause you know, it's, it's, we don't want people to have to go through this. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah can avoid it that's the, the best medicine for sure yes yes so in your experience with advocacy work have you encountered any like successful strategies or programs that are really addressing the needs of like first generation especially first generation and you know black and indigenous you know people of color you know what kind of strategies and programs are out there that have been really effective um the biggest one i think i am a big advocate of college access organizations of mm. every kind um i was actually a, i'm actually a former board member at scholar match which basically works with first generation uh students that mm. have a need financially and really in terms of just knowing how to guide them through college and mm. um if you have a student that needs guidance highly encourage you to look into scholar match um they actually provide um free virtual college coaches mm -hmm. to help students with the college application process which again is one of those things that if you're first gen you don't know how to do it it's not something that comes naturally like there's so much like mm -hmm. not until i became a college counselor i was like oh my gosh like this is a lot like mm -hmm. i had to do it but I, you know when i went to undergrad i was already like an adult so it was a little bit easier for me to comprehend but when yeah. you're a teenager and you're feeling like not one but multiple college applications mm -hmm. on top of that financial aid and trying to understand all those requirements it's a lot it is a lot to understand and organizations like scholar match um there's a few others so many others out there that i think are doing amazing work in helping that specific population of students mm -hmm. to really just help them understand what the college process looks like and not only getting them there because that's the other thing that i found is that some not all organizations work to get the student to college mm. but then it's like oh you made it great and it's like no that's not where it ends like you have to connect them with the support a community there to keep them going because the first year i mean you probably know what the first year of college, it's tough it's, tough. <laughs> it's like the hardest year of college because you're like where am i and what's going on and you know it, it, there's just so much that goes into it and i think organizations that not only help get them to college but have like continued support mm. is probably one of the best things that you can do for this population of students and connecting them to communities that they can stay in touch with and yes. just connect and that look like them and you know they feel like okay i'm you know that that imposter syndrome inevitably mm -hmm. comes up right as a first-gen student and yep. when you have a community in school or out of school that you know you can go to with questions and hey this is how i'm feeling how do i navigate this is so important like so important. So, so important so shout out to all the college access organizations yes. out there because they're doing amazing work so i i really think that that's what's kind of helping mm -hmm. um the first gen BIPOC community to kind of just keep pushing forward because it's not easy. It really is. It's isn't. not. It's not. And I love that you mentioned con that connecting them to community part is that you're right. You, like we can we can help them with the applications, and then once they're there, you're like, okay, go out, have have fun, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> and they're like, what? 
<laughs> so like, whoa, I've got questions, especially for a lot of young people who are going to college right when they're, you know, 17, 18 years old. A lot yeah. has just shifted all of a sudden, <laughs> you Literally. know, like you have a little bit more autonomy than you had before. And that's exciting. <laughs> and you're in a different, yes. you, you might be in a different community. Maybe your friends are there. Maybe your friends aren't there. And so there's a lot going on, especially for that adolescent brain that is still developing and still growing. And so being yeah. able to connect them with community to say, yeah, we, we recognize that this is going to be probably a little tricky. Some, pe some people are going to jump into college and just coast on by and be good to go. Exactly. And, but a majority of people get into college and it's hard and they struggle. And so knowing I that do. you have that community of people who are there to say like, yeah, you're supposed to be here. You've got support. You've got help. Um, you know, let you matter you. here. Let me help you. Like, let's like, what do you need? You need study groups, you need resources, you need like, what, let's get yeah. you there. Right. And exactly. that can do so, 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 so much for students who are, really you know, does. going to school, even kids who are still in high school, middle school, elementary, right. Having community and having trusted adults that you can connect with and you can go to and who understand you that can yeah. take you from zero to 60. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And there's so much research on it. Um, one of the books that I actually read not too long ago, I've mm. actually read this book like several times if anybody's interested. It's uh, the book, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. Heavy research, uh, but one of the biggest concepts that I took away, um, well, if you are a special education teacher, I highly recommend mm -hmm. like this book is great because it talks about believe it or not, it's something called desirable difficulties um, when you have a disability, because there was an area of your life that was so difficult, you make up for it in other ways. So mm. a lot of the most successful people out there have a learning disability. Mm. That's one of the pieces of information that he has. But another thing he touched on that I thought was so important, especially when I was working with Bocce's and, you know, first-gen students mm. is this idea of a small fish in a big pond, mm. right? A lot of these students that are great and did amazing work in their high schools, top of their class, get to the UCLA's, the Harvard's, the Princeton's, and then they're there. Mm -hmm. And then they realize, oh my God, this is harder than I thought. And there's people that are a lot smarter than I am and how am I gonna manage this, right? Mm. So highly recommend if you're in college access too, like that's a great book to read because it really helps you understand how Basically, what he's saying in this book is that oftentimes a smaller school is better for high achieving students, mm. probably, you know, because it leads to a lot of other things, mental health issues where you like, I can't do this or just flat out quitting and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Right. Because they just don't feel like they belong. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, there's bigger conversations around that, too. Like, we need to do more at the Princeton's and the Harvard's of the world and provide more community for them to feel like they identify and belong in that community as well. So, so many topics, Brittany, <laughs> around um, accessibility yes. and, you know, inclusion and mm -hmm. just so much work to be done, I think, in education. But it's exciting, right? It we, is. That's what we're here for. Exactly. Here for. Exactly. There's, there's so many exciting ideas. It can be disheartening at first when we're looking at all the problems mm -hmm. in education and we're looking at all of the students who fall through the cracks and we look at all the students who have been failed by our education system and you know other systems, child welfare and just everything around that. You see the failures a lot and it's really disheartening. It can feel like there's no, like you just feel like there's no way out in a way, but then right. you see people who are doing the work and you see, you know, you read the books and you start reading the more the theory, the philosophy, the research, and 
it it feels I know it gives me a lot of hope. It's like okay, like yes. we're out here, we're out here doing the thing because it's I always mm-hmm. say this, but you know they deserve it. Students deserve it. Teachers deserve Absolutely. it. Families deserve it. They deserve to have an education system that is working in their favor. And speaking mm-hmm. of an education system that's working in their favor, how do you <laughs> reimagine the education system? Oof. I think one of the biggest takeaways in the past 10 years that I've been in education and so many, you know, I've been through, you know, public education as a teacher. I worked mm-hmm. in nonprofit, um, worked in charter, uh, virtual. Mm-hmm. I think I don't... I don't want to say we can't fix the system. It's it's really coming to the realization that this system mm-hmm. was not made for people like me, mm-hmm. right? And I think for me, that was the biggest aha moment is realizing, okay, so I have a system that was not created or tailored for me. Yeah. So as an outside person, I want to be the person that's either bringing the solutions to these huge organizations that are accepting our students mm-hmm. so that we could start to make changes that are really going to welcome all students right yes um so i think trying to just make it inclusive for Mm -hmm. every single student right not making it this box where you have to fit into this box right let's make it more inclusive let's make it more welcoming and let's start to change language around you know who belongs and who doesn't because even though it's not said directly mm-hmm. you can kind of tell yeah you know when yeah. you're there um just by class sizes and mm-hmm. you know uh, you know just experiences that i've heard some of my students say where it's like you know i'm a, I'm the only person of color in this huge mm-hmm. you know auditorium and and you know big university and that to me is it's sad you know yeah. so what are we doing to fix that Cause clearly that's the to me that's a problem I agree. I agree. That is such a problem. And for me, I didn't realize how important it was to have, you know, just looking around your classroom and see people that look like you, you know, just to walk look around mm-hmm. and like, okay, I see brown people here. Am I, I see, you know, brown people in the, you know, in the leadership or as my teachers. I didn't realize how important that was. I grew up in, you know, very predominantly white spaces throughout my, mm-hmm. um, you know, lot, I went to a lot of high schools, but most of them were predominantly white place, white spaces. And I went to community mm-hmm. college, which where I was, it was, it was kind of diverse with the community college I went to. And then mm-hmm. I transferred to uh, my college that I went to. And it is a, it's like it's designated by the Department of Education as a primarily Hispanic serving institution. And oh, so- you know, when I would go to class, there's just brown people everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just looking around and it's just like the conversations had, a, they like, they were so relatable. You know, people would say something like, right. oh yeah, like I, I experienced that or I grew up like that. You know, people who also had, you know, single, grew up with single moms or people who also, you know, grew up in multi-generation homes and all these different things. Like, the conversations I felt were more relatable to me because they, there's people like right. me, they were all around, you know, and that yeah. deepened so much of my experience was just being around other people who, who looked like me, had my experiences, my teachers, like the way that they discussed things and the, the conversations they brought to the table and the nuance that they brought to the table okay. because of their background and experience and, and what they've experienced and what they've seen and the research they've done. It's, so incredibly important <laughs> and i didn't realize it, is. it just being seen right yes. it's like hey i'm here and you acknowledge that i'm mm-hmm. here by 
making the space more accessible to all of us and mm-hmm. having these conversations, which, you know, the thing that gets me is that oftentimes people talk about like, oh, it's so uncomfortable talking about some of these things, but we have to talk about it. Yes. Like, if we don't talk about it, how are we going to solve any of these problems? Yes, yes. Most <laughs> you know, things we so. do that are, are new and novel to us are a little uncomfortable at first. Yeah, you know, like, but that's how change happens. That's how right? change happens. We talk about it. It's a little exactly. awkward and, you know, it's like watching a baby learn how to walk. It's awkward and it's yeah. kind of silly and it's hard for them. You know, they've got a lot of muscles. Right. They got to work to get there. But, you know, you give them like a month or so and they are confidently walking around, maybe even running. <laughs> like, yes, it, exactly. It takes time. But the the benefits we get by engaging in these conversations and the benefits we get when we are fully inclusive in our spaces and, you know, it's not just you're allowed to be here. It's no, we want you to be here. We want you to feel welcome here. And we want you to be a part of this community. That feels different than, yeah, I guess you can sit here. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That is so, so true. It's a different, it's a different it. vibe, you know? <laughs> it is. Absolutely. I like that. Yes. Well, Martha, I'm so excited that you joined me. Where can my audience find you? Anything that you're working on that you're wanting to share? Yes, um, LinkedIn, where you found me. <laughs> so that's like my favorite platform. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only social media I'm constantly on and, mm-hmm. you know, post as often as I can and have time because as I shared, I'm working on my dissertation. Mm-hmm. So that's taking up a lot of my time right now. Yes. Um, but I am working on my baby right now. Um, hopefully more to come on that via LinkedIn. So definitely follow me on LinkedIn. But mm-hmm. I am working on, uh, I'm calling it Ganas Ed. So if you know what ganas means in Spanish, it's to have that desire, that push, like mm-hmm. it really wants it. Um, and it's basically a community for all first-gen BIPOC students to get all of the resources, get all of the guidance, mm-hmm. get all of the support that they need to keep going. Because I, I realized in the time that I've been with education mm-hmm. that that's what I needed. The whole time I was in college, that's what I needed. I needed a community. Mm-hmm. I needed a group of people that I could identify with. and cheer me on and cheer each other on and mm-hmm. that's what it's uh that's what I'm working on right now as soon as I wrap up this dissertation that's taken and consumed my life <laughs> for the past three years um so yeah I like to think I'm giving birth to two babies the dissertation and yeah so definitely more to come well, please connect with me on LinkedIn and everyone and you know more to come on that platform for sure Thank you for having me, Brittany. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. I'd love to have your perspective on here. I'm looking forward to all the, all the work babies that are coming out. Yes. (laughs) I'm I'm very excited. I'll, I'll keep following you along and following on your journey. And I just was super impressed and just excited to see the more that you create. It's, it's really great to see that journey and see you advocating for a community that definitely needs needs that advocacy and needs you know people's eyes to be on it so thank you so much for all that you do and thank you so much for joining me thank you have a good one thank you for all you're doing keep doing it thank you we need more of this (laughs) thank you so much Thank you for tuning into Conscious Pathways. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe Conscious Pathways wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to leave a rating, review, or just share it with your friends. It really does help the podcast to grow. If you are a person who is into video podcasts, you can check out the Conscious Pathways uh, YouTube channel, and you'll have the video version of this podcast and all the other podcasts as well. And until next time, wherever you are on your conscious journey, don't forget to leave courage and kindness. And I'll see you next time. Bye.